0: Guys, I'm going to be going through a lot of information this morning. I'm going to be pressing myself verbally to sort of plow through. So forgive me for that. And I'm going to be reading some texts as well more than I normally would in a teaching. But what I want to do this morning is use two books, two recent uh, Christian books that have impacted the evangelical church certainly in the last few years as a lens to just maybe reevaluate where we're at as individuals and where we're at as a church and be re-challenged to recommit ourselves to a crazy, radical love for God expressed in real, radical discipleship in following Jesus Christ. Two of these books, your head's been in the sand, maybe if you haven't heard of at least one of these. The first of this book is called Crazy Love. This is by Francis Chan. It was published in 2008. This, this book has sold over a million copies, and in Christian circles, that's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. This Publishers Weekly said in part about Chan's book, he was the founding pastor, by the way, of Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California. This is a, a, a mega church for sure. More recently, he's taken some time off to do some other things. But Publishers Weekly said of his book, He offers a radical call for evangelicals to consider and emulate in this debut guide to living crazy for God. Chan writes with infectious exuberance, challenging Christians to take the Bible seriously. He describes at length the sorry state of lukewarm Christians who strive for life characterized by control, safety, and an absence of suffering. In stark contrast, the book offers real-life accounts of believers who have given all, time, money, health, even their lives, in obedience to Christ's call. Earnest Christians will find valuable take-home lessons from Chan's excellent book. That's from Publishers Weekly. Let me read to you two briefly from his preface, and Chan does a great job of communicating God's Crazy love, crazy love is God's love for us and then it's an invitation for us to have that same kind of response, loving response back to God. Chan says this in his preface, we all know something's wrong. At first, I thought it was just me. Then I stood before 20,000 Christian college students and asked, how many of you have read the New Testament and wondered if we in the church are missing it? When almost every hand went up, I felt comforted. At least I'm not crazy. I get nervous when I think of how we've missed who we are supposed to be and sad when I think about how we're missing out on all that God wants for the people He loved enough to die for. I hope reading this book will convince you of something, that by surrendering yourself totally to God's purposes, He will bring you the most pleasure in this life and the next. The core problem isn't the fact that we're lukewarm, half-hearted, or stagnant Christians. How's that for descriptive? The crux of it all is why we are this way. And it is because we have an inaccurate view of God. We see Him as a benevolent being who is satisfied when people manage to fit Him into their lives in some small way. We forget that God never had an identity crisis. He knows that He's great and deserves to be the center of our lives. Jesus came humbly as a servant, but He never begs us to give Him some small part of ourselves. He commands everything from His followers. Now, I confess I'm using this book this morning, and there's some highlights, and I'll mention those again in a minute, but it's only with a certain caveat that I recommend Chan's book. Uh, I'm a stickler on things like the doctrine of salvation, versus discipleship and in my view Chan mixes those up pretty notably so that if you're a Christian and think that you might be what he calls lukewarm by his definition you're not saved in his book he's very clear on this so I I don't advocate the way he presents the message of salvation versus discipleship but there are upsides to the book certainly He reminds us all of the all-consuming cost God calls us to in discipleship. And that's the highlight of both of these books. That is the upside. And if you read it and you look past what I consider the mixed theology, you will be challenged. And in both of the books that we're referring to this morning, they would be worth reading if just for the real-life illustrations, the stories from people that have been impacted and that have been part of the churches represented by these books. So with a caveat just related to that theology the second book that's making waves especially last year and i'm sure we'll go into this year as well is called radical and this is by david platt this was published just last year it's subtitled taking back your faith from the american dream and the mcfalls were nice enough to pass out a number of these books to church leadership i got a chance to read it on the plane on the way back from southern california uh, when he says the American dream, Christian's kind of coming back from the American dream. What he means by that is having a view of life in which we take who we are and what we have so that we can make much of ourselves. That's his view as he's describing the American dream. That's what he's referring to. By the way, if you've, if you've uh, seen Platt, this guy looks like he's 19 years old. He's got three advanced degrees. He's the pastor of a megachurch in Alabama, their senior pastor. He's taught internationally. And in both books, I'm struck by, thinking of Team Haiti this morning, both Chan and Platt have been significantly impacted in their theology and practice by the fact that they've spent time in third world countries. And they viewed the faith through third world Christianity and third world churches where life's a whole lot different than it is here in the United States. So that's impacted both of them. Platt writes this in his book, in part. He says, Instead of asserting ourselves, this is in contrast to, again, the way he's describing the American dream or American life. Instead of asserting ourselves, we crucify ourselves. Instead of imagining all the things we can accomplish We ask God to do what only He can accomplish. Yes, we work, we plan, we organize, and we create, but we do it all while we fast, while we pray, while we constantly confess our need for the provision of God. Instead of dependence on ourselves, we express radical desperation for the power of His Spirit, and we trust that Jesus stands ready to give us everything we ask for so that... He might make much of our Father in the world. Why would we ever want to settle for Christianity according to our ability or settle for church according to our resources? The power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is living in us, and as a result, we have no need to muster up our own might. Our great need is to fall before an Almighty Father day and night and to plead for Him to show His radical power in and through us, enabling us to accomplish for His glory what we could never imagine in our own strength. And when we do this, we will discover that we were created for a purpose much greater than ourselves, the kind of purpose that can only be accomplished in the power of His Spirit. That's Platt. Radical. Like Chan... Platt is out to challenge Christians that our view of life in following Christ has been woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate. And that this is a wake-up call to take seriously the crazy love God has for us and that we should return to Him and the radical nature of the call to discipleship that we're supposed to be responding to. On the negative side in Platt's book, He tends to overstate his positions. Uh, He, without nuance, says things that need to be clarified later. Sometimes he clarifies those things and sometimes he doesn't. But having said that, Platt's book is one that I highly recommend because I know as I read it, I was really challenged. And I was driven back to the Lord to say, Lord, what do you want from me? And what do you want from Lion and Lamb Church? Are we blowing it? Are we pursuing you in the things you want from us? So, it's definitely a book that I felt personally challenged by and would encourage you to entertain at least as well. If you, on either of these books, if you read them, if you're particularly conscientious or if you tend to be hyper responsible and you know who you are, and I know there's a number of you in this group, you have to be a little careful when you read these. Uh, you have to hold those things lightly enough that you end up really with God's conviction. Uh, not something else. You know, if you tend to be very conscientious, you're ready to bear your load and everyone else's too. So the caveat on both books too, if you tend to be like that, you need to read them with some discernment and maybe some patience and say, Lord, as this shakes out, what do you want from me as I reconsider my life in your call? Um, both books emphasize evangelism and service to the poor as one of their main points about the radical call or nature of discipleship. And again, both have been in third worlds, and this has really impacted the way they're looking at life and the call Jesus has on the church. That is one of the world-shaping ways God wants us to be involved in what He's doing is through ministry to the poor and evangelism in places in the world where they simply haven't heard about Christ yet or haven't seen the gospel affirmed. Both books use crazy radical titles, language, and illustrations as they try and drive home this point about the crazy radical nature that we're called to in our response to our salvation. A radical call to commitment and discipleship. And both books address this issue that is undeniably true. It doesn't matter what study you look at, probably for the past 20 years or so, When surveys are done that compare Christians, and by this I mean evangelical Christians with the rest of the culture, there's not a dime's worth of difference between us and the larger culture. And it doesn't matter what you look at. And this is an indictment. So all the surveys say the same thing. And that most of us as Christians don't have a goal that rises higher than the cultures. Which is, we want a safe life, we want a comfortable life, we want a blessed life. We want blue skies and green lights. And you know, I'm struck reading through Second Corinthians. When Paul was assuring the Corinthian church that he was an apostle, the evidence of his testimony was the sufferings he would endured for Christ and in Christ's name. And so there's this radical call to change the expectation we have for ourselves, the goal we have for our life. Going back to Platt's The American Dream, God's goal for our life isn't comfort. And you know, Jesus said through Paul, if you desire to live godly lives in this world opposed to Christ, you will suffer persecution. So it's a radical call to see life differently for the church here in the West for sure. Now, I think one of the reasons these books have resonated so well and sold so well is because they really do touch a nerve and it's like a doctor touching a tender spot on the evangelical church and it's like somebody opening the door that there's a secret that we sort of all know but don't say like chan in his college stadium it's that most of us most of us evangelical christians are living lives of some kind of quiet desperation glad we're saved but wondering where's the rest that i thought life would be more than i'm experiencing I thought I would have a bigger impact on the world. I thought things would be different. And I think this is true pretty much across the boards. Now let me be clear here too as a caveat. While you and I are alive on this planet in unredeemed bodies, in an unredeemed world, we are always going to have a level of frustration, a sort of angst. You know, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, we're told that As long as we live life on this planet under the sun, this world is woven together with a certain kind of futility. Vanity of vanities, the preacher there says. So we're always going to have some sense of not yet. We haven't arrived. And you see that same theme brought up in the New Testament in Romans 8. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. When Paul says, even we as Christians, as the redeemed with the Spirit of God, he says we groan within ourselves. 2 Corinthians talks about we want to get rid of our mortality and move on. So no matter how good spiritual life on the earth gets, for sure, there's still an element of frustration that we haven't arrived, that things aren't as they should be. But we want to press on to experience all that God has for us here and now. Some of us, in contrast to just experiencing that angst that's part of life on the earth though, we're doing what Jesus told us not to do. Remember he said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. If you protect your life, if you say, Lord, it's about me and my comfort and what I can get out of it, Jesus says you'll lose your life. What you keep in Jesus' economy, you lose. You lose. And I'm concerned for myself and I'm concerned for the church too that a lot of us are living the Luke 8 kind of life. If you remember in the parable about the sower and the seed, Jesus says the sower, the farmer goes out with his seed and he throws it and it goes on a variety of soils. And the third soil had all these weeds in it. And Jesus said there in Luke eight fourteen, the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, heard God's word, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Ask ourselves, how fruitful are we in God's kingdom? Are we bearing the fruit He meant us to? Or is God's work in us and through us being choked out by the things of this world? Both books call us to a life that is at the same time more demanding but more satisfying, more costly, but more rewarding, requiring more from us, but giving back more to us. You know, as I was thinking about this, it struck me, there's a great TV commercial that has some kids that played a year or two ago I was reminded of. None of us aim for mediocrity. None of us say our goal in life is to arrive in heaven and Jesus says, I have no rewards for you, right? None of us are saying we want to be less than we can be. But the truth is, little by little, we tend to make decisions that end up cutting out what God wants to do in our life when we're saving our life instead of giving it away. And in Proverbs chapter 24, the wise man went by a field that was overgrown with weeds. And he said, this is the deal. This is the way this field got unfruitful. All these weeds, but no fruit. How did it happen? And he says, well, there was just a little sleep. A little extra sleep. There was just a little extra slumber. I just folded my hands for a little while. And that's how my poverty came on me. We don't aim for mediocrity, but by one small decision after another, when our goal is to protect and save our lives, we slip away from the radical, crazy love kind of life of discipleship God has called us to. We're not aiming for it. We end up there by default if we're not consciously working against the flow of our natural proclivity to save our lives. Happens little by little. I want to use these two books briefly with the time I have left to just do a brief inventory just ask ourselves some questions you know that if you hear a talk that's motivational uh, sometimes we say man uh, I want to go out and I'm ready to save the world now Uh, I'm going to lift I'm going to shed 50 pounds next week or I'm going to take on three jobs or whatever you know I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all the things I haven't been doing and let me just encourage you with this If we find that our life's not where God wants it to be, He normally starts right where we're at and He builds out from there. And so as we think of crazy love and radical discipleship this morning, I just want to start at home and just do a little inventory and you walk through this with me. Hopefully you have a study sheet and can write some of this down for yourself. Crazy love and radical discipleship starts right where you're at, right in your personal state not to be on my soapbox again, but starting with the Scriptures, uh, I can say honestly that God's work cannot proceed in you or through you without the truth of the Scriptures informing who you are, how you think, and therefore what you do. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's Word is living and active. The words in your Bible, they're not just words on a page. Because they're God's Word, they're actually alive. And when you plant them someplace, they grow. God's Word is living and active. It's also sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is so sharp that it can cut things that we think look indistinguishable. It says that it can, sh- it can cut between the soul and the spirit. Where does that end? Where does one end and one begin? I don't know. But God's Word does. Bone and marrow, it can separate the two. We often don't know our own hearts and our own motives. But you know that if you'll give yourself to read the Scriptures, God's Word lays it all bare. And God's Word goes down to and informs me what my real motivation is or what the truth really is or how I'm blowing it or in the ways I'm right where God wants me to be. But if we're not in the Scriptures, God's Word cannot be alive and active in us, and it's not discerning our thoughts and intents. And if we want to save the world, guys, we've got to be reading our Bibles. We've got to be letting the truth of the Scriptures inform us. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32 also, one of my favorite verses, He said, if you're My disciples, really, not just if you say you are, If you're My followers, really, you live in My Word. You abide in My Word. And he says, when you do that, you know the truth, and the truth sets you free. To the degree that we don't know what's true, we haven't imbibed deeply enough of the truth of the Scriptures. And if we look at our lives and realize we're clinging to things God doesn't want us to, we're pursuing things God doesn't mean us to, There's some level at which it's because we don't have the truth of Scripture that has set our souls, our hearts, and our minds free. We need the truth of the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, God speaks to us. We're in a relationship, and that means we need to speak to the Lord as well. You look at Psalm 5, verse 3. This is David speaking. David knew the Lord pretty well. Knew a thing or two about prayer. David says there, In the morning, Lord, you'll hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch David said Lord I'm getting with you first thing in the morning I'm gonna talk to you first thing and I love the way that verse ends and then I'm gonna eagerly watch and I think what David is saying is Lord I'm committing the day to you in prayer and then I'm looking to see how you're at work in it so David starts the day by praying talking to God unloading the things that are on his mind or asking for help in the things that are coming up that day. You look in Matthew fourteen twenty three also in the New Testament. Matthew 14, Jesus has had a really busy day. He's fed a few thousand people, you know, multiplied a few fish and loaves. It's been the end of a long day when He was trying to get away by Himself. And at the end of the day, it says, He sent the crowds away. He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. And when it was evening, He was alone there. You can read other gospel accounts that say Jesus rose early while it was dark to get by himself to pray. Jesus' habit was morning and evening, getting alone by himself to simply pray to his Father. Now if God the Son on earth needs to start and end his day talking to his Father, I'll bet there's a pretty good chance you and I do too the truth of the Scripture, God speaking to us, us pouring our hearts out to God and waiting expectantly to see what He's going to do in our life with those plans, how He's going to be at work and inform those things. I was glad Steve Green a week ago as he talked about uh, his teaching on the front end, he mentioned that there are a lot of people who will tell you they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. Jesus is okay, but forget the church. Now, I understand the sentiment. I totally get it. And a lot of people have been to churches and they're hypocritical and they look down their nose or they're just not authentic and they don't want anything to do with it. And I don't blame them. But guys, you can't be a follower of Jesus and not love the church because Jesus loves the church. And so with all its warts and sins and failures, we have to be committed to the church. It's a requirement. But as those in the church, I just want to suggest that we see personal and corporate integrity as a non-negotiable so that we don't unnecessarily offend those who don't yet know Christ or simply young, immature Christians who have not yet plugged into the church. Personal and corporate integrity. Doing what we say. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's saying, guys, if they're speaking ill of you, let it be slander. It's not true. And when Christ appears, they'll glorify God because they'll then tell the truth to God. Man, they were right on. They told the truth. They spoke in love. They did what they said they were called to do. So if it's slander, that's okay. But let our behavior be excellent among the Gentiles. In our places of employment, with our friendships, especially with folks who don't know the Lord, school, etc., are we known as having integrity? Is Lion and Lamb known for integrity and authenticity? We do what we say or we aim for it. And when we blow it, we say so. That's okay. Everybody's going to blow it. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. Lord knows. But when we blow it, do we say so? Are we honest and upfront? Do we have integrity? Jesus said in Mark 7, and He was quoting Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. He spoke to the Jewish leaders of His day, and He said, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from Me. Guys, you're religious, and it's meaningless. You play the role. You go to synagogue and temple, but you don't know Me. And I think religion is a lose-lose proposition. It's a lose-lose proposition. If you're religious but not in a vital relationship with Christ, you don't have the reality of the relationship. That's a loss. But then also you've said, I've got to maintain a certain religious appearance so I deny myself all kinds of pleasures that would otherwise be available to me. And you lose there too. I just think religious people are the biggest losers on this planet. And guess what? We shouldn't go there. We, we want to know Christ really. We don't want to play at something. Why bother? Really, eat, drink, and be merry. If you don't know Christ or you don't want Christ, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a benefit, short term at least. But why waste a life on religion? Why waste it? It's a lose-lose proposition. And Jesus indicts no one more sternly than religious hypocrites. We don't want to go there. We want a personal integrity is that what's characteristics of us as individuals and as a church taking that personal that's the pulse on our personal and expand it into the kinds of relationships or stages or states of life God has us in if you're an adult single by the way I know there's more adult singles than wish they were in this group right now and you know the age of marriage has risen to 28 and 27 years old male and female respectively and I know Before getting into any of this, let me assure you, I've not met one adult Christian single who told me they were called to be a eunuch. Not one. Everyone I talk to says, I'd love to be married. I haven't met anybody that says they're called. And God's will for most of us is marriage. But as long as you find yourself in the stage of life as an adult single, just think about this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to the church about marriage and singleness. And the truth is, he's hedging on the side of encouraging people to remain single. To choose a single life. And he says in verse 35, I'm saying this for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you. Not to keep you from something good. But to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul says in this chapter, when you're married, you have extra concerns in life. Your spouse, the bills, your children, etc. It's a, it's a labor and it requires energy and time and focus. He says if you're single, you're free to give Christ your undistracted devotion. And so let me just ask you, if you find yourself as an adult single, are you entertaining this call? undistracted devotion to Christ. You have more time, more energy than most married folks just for that focus. Is that something you're taking seriously? In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul wrote to a young adult single, Timothy. And he says there, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. I'm an adult single. I need to take those words to Timothy seriously. Am I showing myself an example of purity? As a Christian in Christ's church, am I showing myself an example of purity? If you're married, most adults are, if you're married, wives, are you single-mindedly determined to love, support, submit, pray for your husband? Swallow hard. Think about it. Are you absolutely 100% committed to love, submit, respect, support, pray for your husband? The reason I say this is, this is without doubt, Christ's repeated injunction and command to wives, isn't it? Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 always says the same thing. Submit, respect, love, support. That's what you are called to as a wife. Is that what you do? And would other people say that's what you do? Would your husband say that's what you do? And husbands, it's easy to talk about wives, Trevor. You know, point the finger at somebody else. But husbands have the greater call, don't they? The greater burden or responsibility. Because husbands are called to love their wives with the kind of sacrificial, life-denying commitment Jesus gave for the church. So husbands, ask yourself this, and then ask your wives. Is your wife a better person because she married you? And is she becoming the person in Christ God means her to be because she's married to you? And are you conscientiously, thoughtfully, prayerfully serving her so that she is growing and becoming more and more the person in Christ God means her to be? See, if we're ready to go save the world but we're not loving our wife, there's a problem. If I'm ready to go be a missionary to the darkest parts of Africa but I'm not praying for my husband, there's a problem. God starts from the inside. He works out from there. If you're parenting, we've got a lot of kids in the church. If you're parenting, remember, parenting is not getting a new set of friends when your kids are little. It's not about friendship. It's not about new playmates. Parenting is discipleship. It's discipleship. And if we fail to see it in that kind of frame, we miss the mark. Parenting is discipleship. And God calls us to train up the children under our authority to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him. And hopefully we're reflecting that in all that they see in us as parents. Are you discipling your own children? Again, if we're ready to go to share the gospel with people in other parts of the world, but we're not discipling our own children, there's a problem. God starts where we're at, works out from there. And kids, children Shelby. You know, God speaks to children, doesn't He? And you know what? He always says the same thing to kids. Why is that? Children, obey your parents. Wow. Children, obey your parents. You know, if you read the life of somebody like Samuel in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, that's what he did. And he's a picture of Christ. He obeyed his parents, and he obeyed Eli in the tent of meeting. And gosh, you know what? If you read in Luke's Gospel, you know who else obeyed their parents? Jesus obeyed His parents too. Can you believe that? God the Son on earth taken orders from Mary and Joseph. But He did. He obeyed. That's what He did as a child. And kids, that's your primary call. If you're still under your parents' authority, ask yourself this, before you head out to Haiti or to India or to China, am I obeying my parents? Because that's God's first call on your life. move from those spheres of personal life, stage of life or state of life we find ourselves in, to this idea of worship, life is worship. I was glad a week ago before open worship, Stephen shared from Romans 12. In Romans, Paul's magnum opus, you know, he develops this great theology. We're lost, we need a Savior. God provides a Savior and God's got great plans for the church and for Jews in the future. That's up through Romans 11. And when it's time to make application in Romans 12, Paul says, guys, in light of all that God's done, this is what we should do. We should, by the mercies of God, present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. He says, in light of all that God has done and all that God is, the only rational response we have is to offer our life straight up to God. And for the Jews, this was a vivid picture. We don't practice animal sacrifice. It's a little less striking perhaps. But if I take that animal and I slit its throat and kill it and burn it on the altar, I know who got all of it, don't I? I didn't get any of it. It was all for God. And Paul says take that kind of thinking to our life lived here on the earth. It's a sacrifice that we offer to God. Ask yourself this in my worst moments, can I offer those words I just uttered to my spouse or child to God? Those thoughts I've been entertaining that others aren't aware of, can I offer those as sacrifices to God? Gets a little personal, doesn't it? My whole life is supposed to be an offering to God. This isn't legalism. This isn't jumping through hoops. This is saying in light of what God has done for me and who He is, I should say thank you by giving him the rest of my life. This is rational. This makes sense. This is appropriate. Do we see our lives as an offering to God? Guys, if we do, this simplifies everything. Because then if God says, Mike, I want you to serve me in Topeka, I say, great, Lord, I'm good to go. If he says, Mike, I want you to serve me in this place in the world, I say, great, Lord, I'm good to go. Because life isn't about my priorities and it's not about saving my life. It's about offering my life to Christ for His use and His glory. And our lives are meant to be a sacrifice given back to God. Worship is not, in the Scriptures, primarily what occurs in a church meeting on Sunday morning while musicians are playing instruments, though it's certainly part of that. Part of that. Let me ask you this. On church worship... When we get together, can we say things like the psalmist said, the sons of Korah in Psalm 45? They said there, My heart overflows with a good theme. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm like a guy who's just waiting to get my pen in hand so I can write this stuff out. It's so good. The things that I have thought about, meditated on concerning the king. The sons of Korah seeing God as their king said, My heart's overflowing. I can't keep it in. It's like a cup that's running over. Is that what you feel like when you come to church on Sunday morning? Maybe, sometimes, maybe not. But that's the call, isn't it? That when we get together, we overflow with a good thing because we know who we believe and who saved us. And we're thinking about Him during the week so that when we come together corporately, you put all that overflowing thanksgiving to God and the church corporately, Paul says in Romans 15, with one voice declares God's glory. Is that what we're doing on Sunday morning? Are we bringing that kind of overflowing heart? Uh, Here's another secret for you guys. Most of us are afraid. Did you know that? Most of us are afraid when we worship and it goes something like this. What will Steve think about me? The guy next to me, if I raise my hand when I'm praying or singing. And I bring this up in the context of Revelation chapter 4. Ask yourself this Do I practice the kind of fall on my face worship that you see in heaven, flat on my face before God? Because in Revelation 4, there's a picture of worship. And it's 24 elders probably representing Israel and the church. And these guys are glorious in heaven on thrones. These guys are sitting on thrones in heaven with golden crowns. They're glorious. They're majestic. They're seated in glory. And what do they do when Jesus shows up in the midst? They take those crowns. They throw them at His feet. And what do they do? They fall face down flat in His presence. And they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Do we practice fall face down flat on our face worship to God? And this is what I mean about we're afraid of each other. You know what? We practice routinely a form of idolatry in the church on Sunday morning because we care more about what the person next to us thinks of us than we do God. And then we do Christ. I don't think that's what He's after. And it makes us small, small people. And we should be like those elders in heaven because we're not afraid to declare the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his glorious light. Do we practice overflowing worship, flat on our face worship when we gather as a church? Ask yourself this too. Does our giving, not just in finances, in time, and energy, and finances, does it reflect the crazy kind of love God has for us and the radical kind of call He has on us in following Him, in discipleship? Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, verse 2. He said, "...live the rest of the time in the flesh, in your bodies, no longer for the lusts of men, for our personal desires, but for the will of God." Did you know that all our time is God's time? Pete says, guys, live the rest of your time not for your own desires but for the will of God. We just ended 2010. We just began 2011. When you look at your calendars or your iPhones or whatever you manage your time on, do they show, do they reflect a commitment to give God our time? Whatever that might look like. Are we giving God our time? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 Paul was writing to the church talking about financial giving also. And there he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. When it came to giving financially, Paul says, Guys, Jesus, our Lord, He's the example. He took the stuff He had, the riches, and He gave it away so that you could be benefited, so that you could be enriched. There's obviously a wisdom issue here about savings, and I hope I don't overstate myself here. Uh, Being wise, savings, paying bills, I'm not advocating that uh, we necessarily sell all our possessions and not know how to pay our bills or take care of ourselves, certainly. But are we practicing that kind of radical, costly giving in our finances as well as our time? Is Jesus our model? Are we His disciples? Do we reflect His kind of costly giving? winding down with this you know in the scriptures as a christian you have the highest standing possible of a human being because you're now called sons and daughters of god those who have trusted in christ who simply said yes to god's offer of salvation through his son jesus are now his sons and daughters highest calling you could have you're also as a christian members of his bride jesus loves the church his bride this is a high calling but you know there's another word that's used of Christians repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And in the Greek it's doulos. And that means slave. And did you know that in the realm of discipleship, our primary name, term, is slaves. bond servants, interpreted a variety of ways in, in our translations. Do we see ourselves as slaves of Christ The humble position? That our life is a response to our master's priorities, not our own? That's radical. That's costly. That's crazy love returned. And you know, Paul, the most exalted, preeminent apostle, every time he talks to people, he says, Hey, I'm Paul, God's apostle, Christ's slave. I'm Christ's slave are we looking at our life in that kind of perspective? I belong to Christ. He's my master. And my goal on this earth is to do His will. You know, all of us are called as His servants. And that call is going to vary with each one of us a little bit at least. But I hope that we develop a sense of purpose in service both at home in our own backyards and in the rest of the earth as well. And that's that's. Illustrated well this morning just as we pray for a team that's going to Haiti. But both of these books at the end of the day, they would be a failure if the church reads them and then nothing changes. We don't take action. The course of our lives don't change into a crazy love return to God or a radical commitment to discipleship, a life-transforming decision to follow Christ in that radical kind of discipleship so I don't know where you guys at the end of the day I don't know how God will choose to use any of us individually or us as a church this can start as close as our homes this can start simply serving your neighbors and sharing Christ with your neighbors this could be serving in the rescue mission in North Topeka this could be short term mission trips this could be praying because you think God may have a long term call on your life to serve him in another area of the world this could be adopting children into your home This could be starting a discipleship group. I don't know for individuals where this goes, but we should be asking ourselves, Lord, Master, what is your call on my life? Where and how do you want me serving? My invitation to you is to join me in asking God to do something in me this year that I'll know only God could do. And corporately asking God to do something in us this year that we know only God could do. And then also doing something, Lord, through me this year that I know only happened because you were at work. And Lord, through us corporately at Lion and Lamb, doing something through us that we know only happened because you were at work. Both of these books do a great job about helping us raise our eyes and think about the crazy, costly love God has for us, the radical call in discipleship He has on us as well. And my hope is that in authentic, real ways for each one of us, in 2011, at the end of the year, we can turn back, look at the previous year, and say, Wow! Wow! God really did something. We prayed about that. God spoke, He led, and this is what we did in God's power because His Spirit was at work. This is the crazy love we responded to God with. This is the radical cost of discipleship in our lives. Father, thanks that You did not piecemeal out Your love to us little by little, but in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, You poured it out richly and abundantly. Lord, we were beggars. We had nothing to bring to You and You blessed us and saved us in Christ, Your Son. Father, help us to respond to that costly, radical love for us with a costly, radical commitment to You. In Jesus' name, amen.